0: To this edition of the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast. We have two guests on our show today. First, we'll talk to Cardinals utility man, second baseman, right fielder, do everything. Tommy Edmond, defensive wizard, about what he does when he is in the field. And then we'll talk to Peter Abraham, Red Sox beat writer for the Boston Globe. He'll talk about the surprising Red Sox being one of the dominant teams in the AL East. Tommy Edmond is in his third season with the Cardinals. He's probably the closest thing we have right now to a Zobrist in that he can play second, third, short, left, right, and play them all well. He's the leader in war among Cardinal position players the last three seasons. Uh, Tommy, thanks for joining us.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. Excited to be a part of the
0: podcast. So, obligatory question to start. Every player that we have on our podcast, we ask the same first question. Can you remember the first time or as far back as you can go that you made a really good defensive play and what it was like?
1: Oh, that's a tough question. So I'm trying to, I think, I think back in, uh, I think I was playing machine pitch at the time and we were playing, I I don't think it even was during a game, but I remember our coach was hitting us ground balls. I think I was probably six or seven years old at the time. And, um, he's hitting us all ground balls and our coach, I don't think, I don't remember him being particularly good at it. And we're all at that shortstop. And, he miss hits a ball and somehow it goes on the second base side of the bag. And he's like, oh, I'll just let it go. But I run after it and make a diving play on it. And I remember him being like, oh my gosh, how did you get to that ball? And I think that might have been the first time that I remember someone saying, wow, that was a great defensive play. And I think kind of from there, I guess I just enjoyed the feeling of of making those good defensive plays and, and just continue to make them since then.
0: All right. I want to talk shop about how you play defense. But before that, this is kind of cool. So you're someone that we can talk shop with about analytics. You were a math major at Stanford. Your brother's in R&D with the twins. Your sister's a systems engineer with the Cardinals. I read a quote from an article about the family talking about what you did in college. And you said the first sentence, uh, first start of the sentence was, we built regression models. But explain the family dynamic here. Were you all like passing Bill James articles or the Moneyball book around the dining room table for uh, when you were eating dinner or something?
1: (laughs) No Bill James. Actually, I mean, I did know who Bill James was in high school, but Moneyball definitely was a a staple of our family. I think we all read the book and obviously watched the movie, but I think it really wasn't necessarily until until college that we kind of all realized that we were super interested in the the analytic aspect of the game. Um, Actually, well, my brother and I did play. We did. Play a ton of fantasy baseball uh, growing up through middle school and baseball, or middle school and high school. Sorry, and that was probably the the beginning of it all in terms of us realizing that that we we loved the statistical aspect of the game. I think my brother, once he graduated college, he got he got a job working with some database stuff in a, in another organization. But I think he realized that he wanted to eventually get into the baseball world, and I think he worked one other job before uh, getting that job with the Twins. And I think my my sister got the Cardinals job actually right out of college, so it's pretty cool how it's worked out that all three of us have have been involved in baseball. and And I think that if I if I hadn't pursued a base a uh, baseball career in terms of playing, I think that there's a good chance I could have ended up in the same field as as those two.
0: What's an example of a baseball conversation that you might have had with your family that others might not?
1: Whenever uh, I see my brother, he's he's always on his computer, kind of like around the, in the database and what he likes doing is he likes looking up actually this is kind of funny he likes looking up the plays that I've made and like the percentage chances and showing me the ones that have the lowest percentage chance of being made so it's kind of like a a little highlight reel and I'll I'll also make sure I'm looking at the ones that had the highest percentage chance of being made that I didn't make just (laughs) kind of just so I can look at what I did wrong in that play and and see how I can improve in the future although I probably have a pretty good idea that I should have made the play at the time but I don't think that's something that most brothers kind of interact <laughs> about.
0: Do you typically disagree or agree with with, with the, the metrics show?
1: No, there's there's not usually too much disagreement. I, I think we're both two pretty laid-back people. We don't really have too many arguments about anything like that. <laughs>
0: gotcha. So was there a moment for you in your life when math really clicked?
1: So my dad is actually a math teacher, and he's taught calculus for like 20 years. And then he's also a baseball coach as well, so... I think that makes perfect sense about how those two interests kind of have aligned, and I think I, it was from a pretty early age that I that I knew that I was pretty good at math. I'd, I'd say maybe going back to like first or second grade, and I've just always had an interest for it, and kind of carried through through my baseball career as well
0: nice uh so we have a common bond both with math and with the idea of keeping score and i was reading that you were keeping score as early as age eight uh as was i Uh, i'm curious though at age 10 i kept score of a baseball game that the mets were playing in in which they scored 16 unearned runs and that (laughs) game i view is like my being able to understand that I view as like an inflection point in my ability to understand baseball at a more complicated level. I'm curious about keeping score and how that impacted you watching the game.
1: Yeah. I mean, I definitely requires a a whole lot of focus. You got to be locked in on every single pitch to, to be keeping score. And, and I think my brother and I both, we would kind of do it side by side, I guess. And, and we just loved the game so much that we couldn't really take our eyes away and forces you to kind of view it in a, the game of baseball in a different light kind of going into the, the pitch by pitch analysis of the game, rather than just kind of taking it inning by inning and seeing the summary of the game. And that way I think you kind of learn the, the little intricacies of the game and little things like uh, just like approach at the plate and how pitchers are attacking hitters. And I think that having done that in an early age, definitely helped my understanding of the game and has helped just, I guess the general baseball IQ that I have now.
0: I definitely uh, get a nice feeling when I see a father-son combination keeping score if I'm in the stands at a game. What, what's the most interesting thing you've read or learned about baseball on the analytics side within I don't know, like the last year or so?
1: Oh, I, I mean, I, I have read a, a fair amount of articles. I definitely go on on some of the analytics websites, and I'll I'll read some interesting articles about. I'm just trying to think of one that I read recently. One of them was about how. Uh, how the hit by pitches are way up this year. And what got me thinking about that actually was we had that one series where we were against the Phillies and we hit like five guys and it kind of seems like the focus for pitching has become way less on command and more on stuff. And not only that, but also throwing pitches in, in areas where hitters aren't able to hit definitely. I mean, the trend has definitely been to get away from early soft contact and more towards strikeouts. So obviously one of the places that hitters are much less likely to hit the ball are are fastballs up and in. And if pitchers don't necessarily, haven't necessarily uh, learned that command or had that command reinforced from a younger age, then they're less likely to be able to command the ball there, which I think has resulted in more hit by pitches. And fortunately for me, I am a switch hitter. And a lot of the times when you see those hit by pitches up and in, it's a righty on righty or lefty on lefty where the ball kind of just sails. So I haven't had to worry about that quite as much being a switch hitter, but um, I thought that was something interesting I've just read in the past few days or so.
0: No, that is, that is an absolutely, definitely a consequence of the new way that baseball uh, is played. All right, so defense. I was watching what was, as you were talking about your highlight reel before, uh, and, we, and we were talking off air about good fielding plays. Uh, Sports Info Solutions has a system by which we will reward players for, A, making the great catch, making the great ground ball stop, uh, things of that sort. But we also reward for making plays where you go into the gap to cut a ball off to prevent a guy from taking an extra base. It all comes together in what we call good fielding plays. Tommy Edmond is the major league leader with 12 good fielding plays this season. Uh, so I want to talk a couple of things related to defense. First of all, how does data impact how you play?
1: I guess the the, mo- the easiest way that I can see it affecting from the defensive side is the little cards. I don't know if, yep. if you see us whenever we're in the field, we have our little cards that Tell us positioning. So, our uh, the Cardinals. I mean, we all have a a system that plugs in all the batted balls that the opposing team's hitters have hit and spits out a number for where you should be playing on the field um, in terms of positioning, in terms of the most likely place for a ball to be hit to you. So, we definitely incorporate that into our positioning side of the game. And then, obviously, when we're standing out there in the field, we're not robots. There's a um, there's definitely a a balance of Seeing what the computer has told us in terms of where to play, and then also reading how our pitcher is attacking a guy and how that guy's swing looks on that particular day. So it's definitely a cool intersection of reading into the analytics of the optimal place to be playing, while also adjusting on in a real time basis.
0: Do you have a, Have you talked to the Cardinal uh, R and D people? And I don't expect you to tell us what they are, but have you talked to them about what their inputs are for considering uh, things like where you should play?
1: No, I I haven't. I could though. Honestly, I I wonder if I. That's that's a good idea. I wonder if I should go talk to them and and see what see the whole process that goes into it.
0: All right. So you mentioned getting a feel for a guy's swing and cheating and things of that sort. And I was going through some of your better plays, and I was hoping that you could di- could dissect one or two of them for us. One that was recent uh, that I my instinct told me that you were cheating a little bit was you made a diving catch on Trevor's story, and I was wondering if you could walk us yep. through that play.
1: I think uh, we had Cabrera pitching a lefty, and he had story had been. I think he saw a few fastballs, and I saw he was out front of a changeup earlier that at bat. And the pitch called was a curveball, and I was playing. I think I was playing in a two, which is about two steps pull from my normal position. So I'm probably I'm probably four steps from second base about, and I saw a curveball, and a curveball is a pitch that the hitters pretty unlikely to, to hit the other way. So I definitely was leaning to my right. I'm not sure. I haven't looked at the video that closely to see if I took any steps before the pitch was thrown, but I was definitely leaning to my right, having a good idea that if there was a ball hit to me, it was going to be to my right. So um, I think because of that, I was able to get a, a good jump on that ball.
0: So that's a great example of uh, how data Knowledge and instincts combine uh, into into one play. Let, let me talk about another, uh, or ask you about another. You were smiling as you bounced off the scoreboard to make a catch on a ball hit by Alec Baum. That looked a little yeah. dangerous. Walk us through that one.
1: I, honestly, I was smiling because the ball was hit so hard. It was a it was a line drive, and one of those I didn't realize how far it was hit. So. I was running back and i I kind of felt a little panic i was like oh shoot this one's gonna get over my head and i just that's all i was thinking about just don't let this get over my head and i jumped up and i honestly didn't realize how close i was to the fence when i caught it i i reached up and caught it and kind of got a little jarred by the fence and i was smiling just because i was lucky that it was a, a chain link fence and not not the uh the brick at wrigley or something like that um it definitely had a little bit more give than than most fences and i actually have had not, not issues, but I have playing the outfield, that's been the biggest adjustment is figuring out warning tracks and and how far, how many steps it takes me to get to the wall once I get to the warning track. And I think that that one play right there definitely helped me become more comfortable with that.
0: Yeah, Doug landfill has talked to us about the idea of the warning track and whether or not it has value because it, it can be a little different in certain places. I don't I don't know if you saw it last night. I asked you about bouncing off the scoreboard. Uh, Albert Almora went very hard into uh, the center field fence at City Field and mm-hmm. came up. He was he was fortunate to come up all right. I'm curious about the experience of of crashing into fences for you.
1: Yeah, so this actually kind of goes back to my my high school days. So my junior year, I was playing shortstop and a batter I think it was a lefty hit a pop-up down the third baseline and it was kind of, it was, it was tailing towards the fence and I'm running full speed towards the fence to try to catch it in foul territory. And I reach out to try to catch it and I didn't realize how close the wall was. And I was running full speed and and I ran with my arm extended and I ended up uh, dislocating my left shoulder on that Mm. fence. So I think from that point on, I was kind of, became a little bit more attentive and just more aware I realized I had to become more aware of where the fences were. And I think it probably took me a couple of years to to kind of get used to that again. And I've de- I'm definitely at the point where I'm able to realize, or I guess have some awareness of where the fence is. And, and I've gotten better at taking that little quick glance without taking my eye off the ball for too long, just that quick glance, just to get a general idea of where the wall is so that I can go on there without too much uh, worry. Do you have a favorite play from this year? I have. I, I mean, I have a couple. I think one of them was the, the play that I made on uh, Suarez, uh, a diving play to my left that I made on Suarez, and that was kind of another one where I was cheating a little bit. We had been attacking. I think we had been attacking Suarez with a lot of sliders, and then it we went fastball away, and I was playing pretty close to right up the middle, and I saw fastball away. This could be one that he shoots towards towards that four hole. And he ended up doing it, and I think a a little bit of a lean that I had definitely helped me get to that ball. And I think, in terms of like the extent of my reach, that was probably the farthest one and just about the the farthest possible ball that I could have gotten to. And I think that was that one specifically. I think was my best play of the year so far.
0: We need a stat to track the extent of a player's reach. Uh, That would I know, yeah, (laughs) that would be a cool thing to add. How self-aware are you of what you need to work on defensively?
1: Our coach staff honestly does a really good job of evaluating post games, looking at plays that I think you could have gotten to, and I think there honestly are a few plays that I could have made that I haven't this year. And a big part of that is just the uh, the first step. I think that's something that I'm pretty much always working on is um, is my prep step and and how to get off the ball the best. And sometimes I have I get in the habit of almost getting like too excited, so I I get my prep step done too early. And then I'm flat footed on the ground, and then when the ball is hit, I take like another false step, and then go after the ball, which helps, which forces me to not get as good a break on it. So I'm just I'm constantly working on that timing and just trying to figure out how best to be getting my feet down right before the ball gets into the hitting zone, rather than after it gets into the hitting zone or too early. So that's that's something that I'm I'm always working on, and probably the thing that needs the most work on the defensive side.
0: So what is the biggest thing that you've picked up from watching the other infielders on the Cardinals? And I ask that with the context of the Cardinals have typically the last few years been the best team in the majors at turning ground balls into outs.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think having played with some elite defensive players, but I mean, especially at the middle with with Colton and Paul, just watching the way they, they go about taking ground balls and not just taking ground balls hit right at them, but making sure they're working on Every single different angle, whether that's uh, forehand, backhand, and also from all the different shift positions, because you know how much we're moving around the field at this point. Especially turning double plays, turning a double play when you're weighing the four holes is a lot different than when you're right behind second base. So just making sure that we're we're attacking attacking the ball from all different angles uh, is super important, just because of the the different the different types of ground balls you'll see throughout the course of a game. And I think I think watching. Uh, watching nolan this year what he works on a ton is he works on his throws he works on his throws more than anyone i've seen and i think it's probably a big reason why he's able to make those ridiculous plays that he has i think he's got like a pregame routine where he's he's working on like those backhands like those running jump throws which i've honestly i've never really seen anyone work on besides him and especially at third base because you have those long throws i think it's the most important over there and i've kind of i've started to incorporate A version of that into my routine because even though I'm playing primarily second base this year um, I've been trying to make sure to go out there like once a week to get ground balls at short and then make those make those throws from short deep in the hole to make sure that my my arm is staying strong and and it makes those those throws those off balance throws from second or any position seem that much easier if my if I know my arm feels good from the hardest throws
0: is there a coach that you want to single out for being particularly helpful
1: but yeah, I mean Stubby Stubby Claps our infield coach. He's our first base coach and infield coach, and he does a great job of making sure we're getting all the work we need. And he's the one I I work on with that that timing prep step stuff as well.
0: I do want to ask about your glove. We always ask players about their their gloves <laughs> and what what makes them good. Uh, and I know you have more than one. I think you kind of have to have more than one, right?
1: Yeah, I do. Yeah, I bring th- I bring oh, I, right now. I bring two gloves out to the field. Last year I brought three because I was playing second third and outfield or second or middle infield third and outfield. And this year I don't bring out my third base glove pretty much because I know no one's going to be playing most of the innings over at third. And if he comes out of the game, then it's most likely carp that'll be going over to play at third. So third base hasn't, hasn't been as much in the picture this year, but I make sure to bring my second base and outfield gloves out to each game.
0: Is there anything uh, particularly that you'd like about them?
1: So I've used the uh, I've used a two Ks, the Wilson a two Ks for my whole career. I think we I used the a two Ks in high school, and then I used the Rawlings in college, and I didn't like the Rawlings as much. But um, it's just that's all personal preference. I know a lot of guys like the Rawlings, but I've always liked the Wilsons. And I have uh, I use in the middle infield. I use the eleven and a half, and then the twelve and three quarters in the outfield. But I feel like I've broken all my gloves in the same way, dating back to high school and. A lot of it is just playing catch with it and then one one actually trick that I used with the third base glove, I don't know it's kind of an unorthodox, but it was it was the beginning of uh, the season in Memphis. I think this was back in twenty nineteen. And one thing I would do is it was super cold and I heard this trick from someone was to put the glove in the microwave for like thirty <laughs> seconds and then go out and play catch with it. And honestly it helped it break it in and my glove broke in really well. I just think you have to be careful of not putting it in for too long because then the leather can get all cracked. But it had a dual purpose of breaking my glove and also keeping my hand warm during the game.
0: That's cool. All right. Uh, So last thing here. We're enjoying talking to you. And we have an opening for a a job opening in our company for someone with an expertise in computer vision. Would you be interested?
1: Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) sure. I'll (laughs) be doing all my spare time. Yeah,
0: (laughs) exactly. So you, you did mention that you, is it possible that you could work in sports analytics someday?
1: Yeah, I, th- I think that's definitely a possibility. Hopefully, it's in about fifteen years once my career's over. But I can yep. see that definitely being a very real possibility. I was going to say fifteen years and one
0: hundred fifty defensive runs saved later. That would be yeah. There you cool. go. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. Thank you for taking the time to join us. And certainly, uh, Tommy. Best of luck in your future.
1: Thank you so much, Mark. Thanks for having me on.
2: The best source for defensive stats and information is our website,
0: FieldingBible.com. You can get all the latest leaderboards for the players and teams. It features our flagship stat defensive run saved. Find out how good your favorite player is. That's FieldingBible.com. Peter Abraham is the longtime Red Sox beat writer for the Boston Globe. Regular listeners know that we bring in beat writers from the various teams over the course of the season, and I felt like the Red Sox were off to a great start this year. We're a good place to start. First of all, Peter, so this is a little self-deprecation. In my preseason picks, I think I had the Red Sox at 72-73 wins. So why have they been better than I thought they would be?
2: Well, I would say two reasons. Alex Cora is now back-managing. And J.D. Martinez is now back being J.D. Martinez. And I think Alex's presence has made a big difference. He's, he's a very good manager. You know, I certainly don't agree with what he did in Houston. And, I, and I, if you tell me that he doesn't deserve to be a manager again, I, it's hard for me to argue against that. But the Red Sox decided to make him the manager again. It's a, it's a good job for him. He's, he's a good communicator. He knows baseball really well. He has a way of um, bringing along young players and making them better. He has a way of convincing older players to change their ways. He's bilingual. I mean, you name it. He checks off every box as a manager for me. And and his presence, I think, just alone has made a, made a huge difference. But they also have the, you know, the J.D. Martinez, who's been an all-star, who fell off the charts last year, had a terrible season. And without him in the middle of their lineup or, or with a facsimile of him in the middle of their lineup, they weren't the same team. And, and I also just think the other part of it is they, they've gotten over the hangover of losing rookie Betts. That was, you know, it happened right before spring training started last year. And that was basically a, a big sign from ownership saying, well, you know, so much for 220. And and they've gotten over that now. they you know, they're they're back to trying to be a competitive team again.
0: At the time that we're taping this, the Red Sox are eight games better than the Dodgers in the loss column, a number I did not expect to say this season. Oh. You, you, you mentioned Alex Cora and ch- getting veteran players to change their ways. What's a like a quantifiable example of that?
2: Well, Matt Barnes, I think, is probably the biggest. Uh, this is a guy who was throwing mostly curveballs at a very slow pace. He, he just would stand around the mound and then decide to throw a curveball and bounce it. And when he threw his fastball, he was throwing very high fastballs, hoping to get a chase that he almost never got a chase. And now he's become a guy who works at a quicker pace, has increased the usage rate of his fastballs. He's throwing fastballs in the strike zone, letting his stuff play. And he's become one of the best closers in the American League. So that to me has been a huge difference that the, their end of the game situation is much cleaner than it was last year. I am going to say, the other part of it is Xander Bogarts is, is you know, really taking step forwards and he's been a good player the whole time, but um, you're seeing Xander now offensively has been the best shortstop in the big leagues, which I think people understand that Xander is a very good player, but you probably thought, well, he might be the fourth or fifth best offensive shortstop in the game. Well, right now he's the best.
0: Yeah, he's been fantastic so far. You mentioned JD Martinez as well. What stat? tells the story best for the red sox season
2: you know if i had to say it would probably be jd's ops which is you know well over a thousand now his, his being in the lineup you know he, whether he's hit, whether he hits third or fourth he's sort of that bridge between bogart's at the top and when it was kike hernandez until he got hurt and then down to like say devers and hunter renfro he's the guy in the middle who kind of is, is an on base threat he's a power threat he, he he's you know, RBI, he's he's a guy who, when somebody's on second base, he's, he smells out that RBI. He figures out a way to get him in. And whether it's a sacrifice fly, you know, doubles, he, he just has a good sense of being able to drive in runs. And his confidence, I think, makes us changes the team. At, at some point last year, I think it was about August 10th, J.D. was like, well, this is what this is, and this isn't going to work for me, and, you know, I'll see you next year. And that hasn't been the case this year. He's, he's got the in-game video back. He's, he's able to go to his sources. And his influence on other players is, is very big in that clubhouse. He's a guy who is he won't go to you, but he'll he'll he basically says before the season, if you have an issue with hitting, don't ever feel afraid to come to me. And if you if you come to me, I'll I'll try to help you. And he's done a lot for guys. He he's helped Raphael Devers and he's helped Xander Bogarts. He and Mookie used to talk all the time when Mookie was here. And JD feeling good about himself really changes that
0: team. How is it that he, Bogarts and Devers all have 900-something or better OPSs. The rest of the team, to be, to put it nicely, doesn't. And the rest yeah. of the sport, basically, doesn't. Is there something that those three guys have unlocked this year that allows them to essentially be playing more along the lines of, like, 2018 ball compared to everyone else that's stuck in this 2021 malaise?
2: Yeah, yeah. And the only guy sort of in the middle for the Red Sox is Christian Vasquez. You know, everybody else is either one side or the other. I mean, I think the the most basic answer is those guys are very talented All Star level players, and the, the likes of you know Hunter Renfro and Marlon Gonzalez are not those kind of players. And and they the pay scale is very different when you look at you know what Xander and JD are making and, and what those other guys are making. So uh, that's the most simple part of it. And I think the other part of it is those guys are not all necessarily launch angle hitters. Alex Verdugo certainly isn't. Uh, Xander is certainly not. And, and Rafi's an opposite field line drive hitter. They're not guys who are going up there and it's either a strikeout or a home run. They have pretty good all-around approaches. Where the Hunter Renfro's of the world, Bobby Dalbeck's of the world, those guys are up there you know, swinging out of their shoes. And, and when it when it when it works, it looks great. And when it doesn't work, they strike out. And so the Red Sox I think are fortunate to have some some good all-around hitters at the top of their lineup.
0: Yeah, and uh, they they have the best numbers in the sport right now. Although, if you looked at those and you put them in a different uh, season context, it wouldn't it wouldn't be like that. Uh, what's your take on just offense in baseball this year in general, and what you've seen from the ease with which pitchers are picking hitters apart?
2: Yeah, there's been some ugly nights for hitters, and you know the Red Sox the last couple of days have experienced that. I, I, I you know, I, we haven't seen it yet, but I would love to know what the effects of the dead end ball are because I, I have seen. A few times where I thought, well, that ball's out out off the bat, and then it was caught. Now, the Red Sox also played a miserable weather at Fenway Park so far. Uh, This is really the first homestand that they've had that it hasn't been not just not nice, but like miserable. So uh, I'll be interested to see if the ball starts to carry more at Fenway in the next couple of weeks. But even at Camden Yards, a place where the Red Sox usually rake, like the other night, they had a bunch of balls that were caught on the warning track. So I don't know what the effects of that are, but uh, as we learn more about that, I suspect that'll have something to do with it.
0: All right, moving to the pitching side, can you explain the success of Nick Pavetta and Eduardo Rodriguez?
2: Well, Nick Pavetta, I would say, is bent on revenge. He felt like he was pushed to the side in Philadelphia, which he was. He was down at the alternate site. He didn't have much use for them. I don't think they had much use for him. Uh, he was included in a trade, and ever since then, he's been very good. I think part of it is he's just trying to prove people wrong and and trying to you know reclaim his place in the game, uh, and that can be a powerful motivator. Oddly, his walk rate has gone up, but he's also striking out a, a few a few more, and he's not giving up many hits. He's just he's proven to be a tough guy to hit, and even with the walk rate going up, he's been sort of committed to throwing his fastball in the strike zone and challenging hitters. He's done that better than he has in the past, and the Red Sox also have been kind of smart with how they've used him. He's kind of a five and dive guy. They don't try to get too much out of him. He gets through the first the order twice, then they take him out. And that's worked out pretty well. And in in turn, who's the other guy you asked about? Eduardo? Well, I mean, he's just back to being the guy he was in 2019. He missed all of last year with COVID. They were very, very cautious in bringing him back. Um, He had uh, myocarditis, which is a swelling around the heart. And at one point, uh, the doctors told him, like, you have to just sit in your house. You can't do anything. Like, don't go out to get groceries. Just sit in your house. And then when he was cleared to start, you know, working out, that was like, okay, take a walk out to the mailbox and... Come back and we'll see what we do tomorrow. Like, it was really that elementary. And they they took a while to get him on the mound. Uh, They were very careful with him in spring training. He had a little bit of an arm issue at the start of the season. They immediately put him on the IL. But since he's come back, he's been great. And I think a part of it for him is just trying to prove that he's back to being who he is. And the other part of it is, with everybody gone now, he's the oldest, you know, the most tenured starter on the team. You know, David Price is gone, and, and Chris Sale's rehabbing, and Rick Porcello's gone. And Eduardo has kind of taken on that role of of being you know, sort of the, the connection to the past with the Red Sox, and he takes it seriously. And he feels like when it's his day, his job is about to go out there and go seven and give him a chance to win, and he's largely done that.
0: On the defensive side, I know for a fact that Alex Cora prioritizes defense, particularly de- defense in terms of turning ground balls into outs. This is something that the Red Sox haven't been good at the last few years. Is there any potential to see something like that change with this current team?
2: Yeah, they haven't been particularly good at it this year either. And I, there's two things going on. that they're, they're not using a second baseman every day. They've been changing that around. I think initially they thought it was going to be Kike Hernandez quite a bit. He's ended up being in the outfield because Frenchie Cordero has been so bad. And then they've turned to Christian Arroyo, who's sort of on the comeback trail from being a failed first-round pick. And he's actually been pretty good, and now he's on a DL. And now they've they've, they've turned to Marlon Gonzalez, who is, I think, much better as a utility player than he is as an everyday second baseman. So they really haven't had a second baseman. And that's, I think, you know not been advantageous as Andrew Bogarts. Rafael Devers was not playing well defensively at the beginning of the season. He's playing much better now. And the defensive numbers show that Bobby Dahlbeck hasn't been very good. But I think he's been better than they show. I think he's had a, a couple of tough breaks errors that were called on, you know, some maybe 50-50 calls. He's pretty good around the bag. I think he's going to get better. And once Hernandez comes back and either he becomes a second baseman and they find another outfielder or Arroyo comes back and and he's the second baseman, I think having a, you know, not changing the look of the infield every day will help them become a better defensive team.
0: Before we let you go, let's go around the division just uh, quickly. Your thoughts on uh, the other teams in the AL East? Just one takeaway maybe on each one.
2: Yeah, well, the Red Sox have played the Orioles a ton of times, and, and their pitching is a lot better than I thought it would be. Obviously, John Means has been you know excellent, but Matt Harvey's been pretty good. They've got some good arms in the bullpen. Uh, I saw Jorge Lopez the other day uh, strike out a bunch of Red Sox, and so yeah, they're they're a lot more competitive than I think a lot of people thought they would be. Um, we haven't seen Toronto yet, but it's I'm pretty impressed they're doing as well as they have without George Springer. Uh, obviously, Vlady Junior has been terrific. Yeah, they're they're to me. Uh, you know, if they can get Springer back and healthy, they they got a chance to really launch. I think uh, the Red Sox, oddly enough, haven't played the Yankees yet and won't play them for a while. But it, to me, they look like a pretty top-heavy team. You know, Stanton and Judge, uh, you know DJ LeMay, who Garrett Cole, chap, Chapman—all of their big stars are, are playing pretty well. But they don't get much out of shortstop. They don't get much out of catch. They don't get much out of the corners. It's kind of a you know a weird team, like sort of a, a, a you know one side or another, and tampa bay you know tampa Bay's weird like like their numbers suggest they probably should be better than they are their pitching's not as dominant as it was last year the issue with tampa bay and and, and talking to high and blue about this you know they run on a very narrow margin like if things go well it can go really well as we saw last year but they can't afford to make too many mistakes like they, they, they just DFA'd a guy they paid 12 million to you know that hurts them like they just can't swallow that money like the red sox and yankees can so they're, you know, with their injuries and, and the different things that have happened there, they, they probably, I bet you their internal numbers are not nearly matching up with what they're actually doing because of some of the mistakes they made with the roster.
0: Last question, uh, is the laundry basket this year's version of wind dance repeat? Yeah, I guess it is.
2: Uh, <laughs> somebody actually sent them a custom made laundry basket. So I guess it's kind of a thing, but it's, it's funny with, um, you know, we, we don't get to go in the clubhouse anymore. So you don't really get a, a sense of are they just doing that for the cameras? Are they actually having fun with it? Like, it's kind of hard to know. But, you know, they are having some fun. I mean, last year was – it was a weird, miserable season for them. You know, I think everybody knew Ron Reneke wasn't the long-term manager. Uh, Fenway Park Empty was a kind of a spooky, weird place. You know, and and you could tell they weren't going to be very good. They had a lot of injuries. And they, they were looking for something. And live in the last two weeks, they came up with the laundry basket, and they kept it. And I'm just – Jenny Martinez took a tumble out of it. and I'm wondering if at some point, like somebody's (laughs) going to crack their head on a pole in a dugout and Alex Gordon's going to be like, all right, that's the end of the laundry basket. You know, we're not doing that anymore, but so (laughs)
0: far, so good. Nice. All right. uh, Pete Abraham, thank you for uh, taking the time to join us. Yeah, you bet. Anytime. And this wraps up the Sports Info Solutions Baseball Podcast for Tommy Edmund, Peter Abraham, and our producer, Justin Stein. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for tuning in to the SIS Baseball Podcast. If you like the show, please rate and review us on iTunes. If you have any questions, email the show
1: at mark at sportsinfosolutions.com or tweet us at sportsinfo underscore SIS.